Okay. Okay, guys. Next thing we're going to talk about is the use of imagination in prayer. And um, I'm going to go through this quite quickly because I don't think we have the problem that we used to have in this. When I wrote this prayer material, uh, it was a long time ago. And there was a book out which... Every, every so many years, a really nasty book comes out that causes panic in the Christian community. And this one was um, an anti-use of imagination in anything book. And the argument goes like this. I guess, I, I think it was a, a written in reaction to um, some of the early books on inner healing. The Sanford's books and some other um, books which included use of imagination and directed imagination in inner healing experiences. And out comes this book about uh, dismissing all of that as vain imaginations. And um, so when I was trying to do some exercises with the use of imagination in studying scripture and in reading the Bible and in prayer, there there would be this sort of uh, fear, well, we're going into the misuse of the imagination like these guys describe and so that's going to be demonic and we're all going to go to hell and you're a false prophet and you should you should go to hell and stuff like that uh well it got pretty got pretty heated in those days anytime you're breaking new ground in anything you're going to get a whole lot of heat um so anyway this section is really an answer to the issues that were raised in that book And they may not be most people's issues anymore, but we're going to go through them fairly quickly. The the argument against the use of imagination in prayer goes like this. A. Shamanism and various clearly occult groups have been using visualization techniques as a part of their religious rituals for centuries. Two. this, This is a logical, apparently logical progression of an argument. So the first one is cults and false religion shamanism use imagination visualization techniques as part of their rituals Uh, these faiths are anti-christian therefore these practices are anti-christian these practices involve the use of imaginations imagination so christians mustn't ever imagine anything while praying all right that's how the argument progresses um Here's the truth in this argument. All faiths, occult included, which are based on magic, believe that by the correct application of rituals and incantations and techniques, the universe can be controlled or manipulated so as to do the practitioner's bidding, hence increasing his power through harnessing of supernatural forces through incantation or technique. That's the definition of magic. Okay? Do you got it? And the particular technique at issue in this case is visualization. The use of mental images to achieve the desired result. In other words, the power of positive thinking. If you can imagine it and see it, you have control over it, you can make it happen, some form of mind control. So that's the truth. There are groups that do that and um, teach that and believe that. 
The second part of the argument runs like this. Shamanism and the New Age movement rely heavily on the use of imagination to visualize spirit guides, friendly spirits, who come to advise and help direct one's life. These spirit guides are real. They're evil spirits coming as angels of light to deceive and entrap welcome hosts. Since such spirits exist and come when we use our imaginations, we must never use our imaginations. Not even to imagine Jesus, because we will not get Jesus, but a false spirit pretending to be Jesus, who is there to deceive us. That's how the argument goes. This argument maintains that false religions use their imaginations, and therefore we should not. It argues that imagination is an open door to the realm of the spirit, therefore we must keep the door closed. It assumes that since imagination can be used for evil, it can't be used for good. This is the throwing the baby out with the bathwater argument. It's similar to the evangelical church's fear of emotionalism. We saw excesses years ago and we decided to solve the problem by denying our feelings. A part of the church became hyper-intellectual and emotionally retarded. To overreact to a problem is just as bad as to not react at all. Right? The problem with their argument is it's not biblical. The Bible does not reject human imagination as evil. And the Bible does not counsel us not to use it. The references are few. You shall not make for yourself an idol. Genesis 6, the Lord saw how, man, how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination, that word is uh, translated inclination there, but it's also uh, imagination. Every thought, in effect, of the thoughts of the heart was only evil all the time. The Lord saw this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's the proof text for not using your imagination. Good Lord. It's really talking about the desires of our hearts, our passions and our leanings, and uh, not about imagination as a faculty, a human faculty like the intellect. Um, and the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more living thing as I have done. The Bible's not saying that human imagination is wrong. It's a God-given facility. It's a faculty he gave us. If he didn't expect us to use it, he wouldn't have used metaphor and allegory and symbolism and pictorial teachings throughout the Bible. It is, in, it is impossible to read the Gospels of Jesus Christ without using your imagination. I am the tree, you are the vine. The kingdom of God is like this. You end up seeing it. If you don't see it, there's really something wrong with how you're reading the Bible. I, uh, a mother might forget her child, but I could never forget you because I've written you in the palm of my hand. When you hear that, you see a palm of hand. Do you know what I mean? The Bible is so full of imagery. You 
can't read it without using your imagination. Read the throne scene in Revelation. Good Lord. If you don't get a picture of, of a powerful bunch of special effects going on in that picture, you can't, you can't read that purely intellectually. You have to end up seeing it. It's too powerful not to see. It evokes your imagination. It requires that you see some sort of imagery in the mind's eye. So the issue is not whether we use our imaginations or not. It's whether we use our imaginations for good or for evil. Yes. Right? Gosh, you know, this, this argument is so demonic because it's trying to counsel Christians into not using their imaginations. But you know what happens? They'll decide never to imagine Jesus, never to imagine a biblical scene, never to imagine anything like that, but they'll imagine having sex with somebody. They'll imagine a business meeting where they're taking control and exercising their influence over people and succeeding and making this or that. <laughs> you can't help but use your imagination. So all this argument's done is ruled out using it for good, just leaving the only turf left for your imagination being sin. Does that make sense? Is this, is this crazy? Anyway, enough of that. The question is, how do we use it um, by God's design? Just like we use our bodies, our emotions, our intellect, and our will. How does our imagination become sanctified? Is the real question. How does it become consecrated to God's use? Because once our imagination is consecrated to God's use, it becomes an incredibly powerful tool. Just remember, our imagination is a facility, a faculty, just like reason. But just like reason, it's fallen. You know what's really funny? The people that... The people that diss the use of imagination are those that think that their reason's safe. As it, well, Pete, come here. Get in the house. The, the, the subculture in the church that most suspects imagination to be evil or to be unsafe are those that trust their intellects. Well, where did false doctrines and heresy come from? As if our reason is not fallen? Like we can somehow trust our reason to read... You know, there's actually people that have said, if we all just read the Bible thoroughly, there would be no disunity. We'd all arrive at the same theological place. It's only because we trusted in our reason, reason so highly and read the Bible so carefully that we ended up divided on all of our... Theological. See the microphone? Isn't that cool? I love that thing. Someone was using his imagination when he created that. Okay. Um, our imagination is a faculty just like reason, but just like reason, it's fallen. It's no longer operating like it was designed to, and it has become perverted in its purpose. Our imagination, like every other part of our person, has to be renewed, regenerated, and sanctified by God for His purposes. Now, when we become a Christian, we receive the Holy Spirit. Our imagination isn't instantly sanctified. It's not instantly made perfect or holy or completely consecrated to God's use. Neither is our reason. Neither, neither is our will. Neither are our talents. Neither are our physical abilities. The process of being made holy is a process. It's not instantaneous. And our 
Imaginations need to be touched by God just as much as any other part of us. So, all this to say, there is some warning in what these guys have written. If you're going to use your imagination, especially in prayer, you really want to be doing it right. And, you, and, and, and the, the key to doing it right is doing it for the right reason. If your motives are pure, chances are your use of that faculty will be pure. If your motives are corrupt, or uh, as James would say, you know, divided, your motives are mixed, your hearts are divided, then the use of anything is going to become suspect and dangerous. And the more powerful the thing, the more destructive the result. So the key to using your imaginations in a godly way is to examine your heart and make sure that your heart is focused on the right things when you go to employ that faculty. And imaginations are a door to the spirit world. Okay? All you got to do is go see a horror film to see that. All you got to do is feed yourself some garbage and you realize what I'm imagining and what I'm reading in this book or what I'm watching there is a doorway to the supernatural. So it can be a doorway to the supernatural good or it can be a doorway to the supernatural bad. We've got to filter out the bad and avoid it and use it for the good. So again, it's about what you're using it for. Not that you're using it, but what you're using it for. Evil spirits do exist, and they do exist to deceive people, Christians included. And their goal is to lead Christians away from Jesus. So when we use an unsanctified imagination to ponder spiritual things, we are risking false guidance. But the solution isn't rejection of imagination and reliance on propositional logic. Because reason is equally fallen. Reason doesn't reach the heart as deeply as imagery does. We're talking about emotional realities here and not merely intellectual understandings. And most of the Bible's love passages are conveyed using imagery, which is made to be tasted, not studied. Does that make sense? I said, most of the Bible's love passages, the vast majority of them, are conveyed using imagery, which is made to be tasted, not studied. I have longed to gather you like a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Now that is designed to reach your heart, not to turn into a five-point sermon. You can turn it into a five-point sermon, but before it was ever intended to be that, it was something to touch your heart. And the imagery touches your heart. I have stilled and quieted my soul within me like a weaned child in its mother's breast. Man, that is good imagery. That speaks volumes to anyone who's ever watched a kid, held a kid, parented. That carries a whole lot of emotional meaning. What manner of ridiculous, excessive, inexplicable love God has lavished on us that we might be called his children, and that's who you are. I mean, just there's so much emotional content wrapped up in the images that we see when we hear these passages. Okay, so how do we tell 
when our imagination is unsanctified and leading us into deception. For Samuel 1.15, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as an iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. I puzzled for a long time. What is the relationship between rebellion and witchcraft and stubbornness with iniquity and idolatry? I think it comes down to this. If your heart, if, if the inclinations of your heart, if the deepest desire you have is to know God and serve Him and obey Him, you can trust all of your faculties. If your motives are seriously mixed, and guys, I'm not suggesting that to be safe you have to be 100% committed to the Lord. I don't know. There's probably a few people that are 100% committed to the Lord. I just don't know very many of them. We are all people of mixed motives. At least, I'm not sure. I've had a few moments where I had pure motives, but most of the time they're mixed. I'm serious. I can think back a few times in my life where I can say, yeah, I think I was 100% on that one, but those are like, I'm 61, and that's two or three times. Not a good average, is it? Most of the times there's some of what's in it for me going on. We just can't help it. I mean, gosh, that's what it is to be a person. But So we're not talking 100% on anything. We're talking if the majority of the time, the majority of you is for Him, then the general inclination of your heart is for Him. If that's what you want to be, and that's what you're longing for, then your heart is well focused, and your motives are in the right place, and you don't need to worry about your imagination and the use of imagination in prayer. But if you, guys, if you find a trace of rebellion in your heart, if there's still a root of rebellion in there, route it out. Because it will corrupt your reason, it will corrupt your will, and it will corrupt your imagination, and it will corrupt your emotions, and it will corrupt everything that you do. You've got to deal ruthlessly with rebellion. Rebellion, listen to me, rebellion which is not dealt with will turn into witchcraft. I'm just going to tell you how I discovered this because it's it's so interesting. It's not. I don't want to scare you, but I want you to understand how I discovered this. There was a guy in our church. Um, whenever he was around women, they felt dirty, and many of them came to me and said, "I don't want to be in a group that that guy's in." And when he hugs me at church, I just want to run. Yeah, I I, I just go cold inside, and it's creepy. And um, he wasn't paying his income taxes. And a new Christian went to live with him because he needed a place to live and discovered how he was cheating. Hadn't, I mean, just hadn't paid income taxes forever. And uh, we approached him about that. What are you going to do about that? And, and a few other things. And his answer to us when we would raise any of these issues about these sexual problems and um, the taxes and some other things, he would talk about the spiritual experiences that he was having. 
and how God was blessing his life. Incredible stuff. I mean, some of the stories, amazing. Visitations in the night, waking him up in the middle of the night, angels in the room, um, God physically touching him. I mean, high-value stuff that make great testimonies on Sunday morning. For charismatics like us, we love that stuff. I mean, that's like premium stuff. And he's relating all this stuff, and he is absolutely certain that there's no problem in his life because God is blessing him like this. So I'm looking at someone who's, and his attitude towards the leadership, towards other people, asking him any questions, was completely arrogant and completely self-centered and completely rebellious. And yet he's got more spiritual stories than you can shake a stick at. And I'm trying to figure out how that can exist in the same person. And then I run into this verse, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And I start pondering it. And this is what the Lord showed me. And here's the progression. And it goes like this. A Christian consciously chooses to practice a habitual sin. Okay? Now, listen. There are uh, what we call habitual sins where the person hasn't chosen it. They have fallen into it and it has a grip on them and they're in serious trouble. But they're not doing it because they want to. In fact, they'd like to be free. I'm talking about someone who is chosen to habitually practice a sin and they're fine with it. In fact, they don't want to give it up. They don't want to be free. They're going for it. This is it. This is what they want. So they make this choice. The person then begins to rationalize the sin. If you're a Christian and you're practicing habitual sin, you have to come up with a way to rationalize it or you can't stand yourself. You can't. It's a disconnect, right? So he deceives himself into thinking it's not wrong. He feels guilt, but he won't repent or quit. Now listen, here's the key part. To appease his conscience, he begins overcompensating with outward signs of piety. He becomes hyper-pious and spiritual. You see a lot of religious prayers, a whole lot of gesturing, profuse praise and religiousness. He seeks spiritual experience to appease his conscience. The enemy sends an evil spirit to encourage this piety because it is false and it arises out of rebellion. Therefore, a religious spirit starts providing real spiritual experiences. This guy was not imagining things. He was hearing voices. He was having visitations in the middle of the night. He was having physical experiences of a spiritual nature. They just weren't from God. Okay? Voices, visions, physical sensations, false tongues, prophecy, the works. The point is that these experiences are real, but they're not from God. The result is this. The person is now sure his piety is from God because it's working. He is also sure his sin is okay because God is blessing him with spiritual experience. The deception ultimately leads to full-blown demonic deception and divination and witchcraft because he is now so certain his rebellion is not rebellion that God somehow has made an exception to him in this particular sin and it isn't really sin anyway because look how the Lord is interacting with me and blessing me and this leads to complete deception and the person is oftentimes lost. You with me? Rebellion unchecked 
will mutate into something far worse than rebellion unchecked. It's the seed of something. How do we avoid this? How do we avoid this? Well, we repent of sin and we cease any consciously chosen rebellion. We make it the purpose of our prayer to know Jesus, to love Him more deeply and serve Him more faithfully. Not the purpose of our prayer is to have spiritual experience. Not to have merit badges on our prayer little Boy Scouts girl guide vest. Not to have something to talk about or feel spiritual about. Knowing Him for the reward of nothing but knowing Him. Knowing Him is the reward. Purify our hearts and our motives. When we have false motives rising up, just deal with them. Don't make excuses. Say, yes, I'm really selfish in this area. God help me. Yes, I'm self-willed here. God help me. Yes, I've got mixed motives about why I'm pursuing you, God, and I wish I didn't help me. Show me, search me, O Lord, and see if there is any wicked way in me. Show it to me so I can say I don't want it and then please help to remove it. When that's your heart, that's what you want. Your reason and your imaginations are safe. Because your heart's focused on the right thing. And I'm not saying perfectly, but I'm saying most of you, most of the time. Okay? If your goal is humble obedience, you can entrust Him with everything. Next point, stay... Okay, let let me go through the safeguards to imagination prayer. One, always pray for the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the protection of Jesus' blood over your prayers. If you're going to use your imagination in prayer, pray a little little who, who rules here prayer and who doesn't get to interfere with my prayers right now prayer. Okay? Like I always start by saying, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I command whatever is not of God to leave this place right now. And I welcome only the Holy Spirit and only the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I give my imagination over to that Spirit and not to any other. Use your authority. You have the authority. Use it. Don't let anything come into your prayers when you're doing this. Number two. As I've already said, repent of any known sin. Just lay it out there and say, God, I'm guilty of this. And... um, Help me to repent, to change my thinking, go another direction. Deal with it. Number three, ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart. He'll show you if you're seeking spiritual experiences to boast and be proud. He'll show you if you're seeking an image of Jesus ahead of Jesus or an experience ahead of the real Lord. If your goal is humble obedience, you're okay. Four, stay within the bounds of Scripture. This is your plumb line, okay? Judge all imaginations and visions by whether they conform to what the Bible tells us. Anything that is not consistent with the character of Jesus and the person of Jesus and the deeds of Jesus, don't trust that imagination. Anything that isn't scriptural, don't even debate or argue with it, just reject it. Use scripture as your basis for your imagery, Jesus' life, the throne, whatever. When something begins to differ materially from what you know is true in Scripture, just go back to Scripture and abandon that imagination. Five, don't believe that what you are seeing is historical. But what I mean is, especially when we imagine things in the Bible, and we're going to do it in a minute, 
you know, you might have the most vivid scene of Palestine and you might see all sorts of cool details and Jesus walks up and he has a certain color hair and his eyes are such and such. You're not seeing the historic Jesus, okay? You're seeing a construct created by the Holy Spirit and your imagination. The point of it is not what you see. The point of it is not the details of the image. The point is the point of the image, the message. What is it telling you about Him? What is it telling you about the Father? What is it telling you about yourself? This is the value in the experience. Not the detail of it. You're not... This isn't astral travel and you're not being transported back to Bible times and having an out-of-body, out-of-time experience. That's not what's happening. You are imagining something and the Holy Spirit is using that faculty of your imagination to help you understand God better and your relationship with Him, what He's really like, to love Him, to know Him more intimately, to love Him more deeply, to serve Him more faithfully. Those three things all go together, and that's the point. To know Him more, to love Him more, and to serve Him more. Ask Jesus to use your imagination and Scripture to reveal His glory and His beauty so that you may love Him more. Know him more and serve him more. And number seven, number seven, check the fruit. If your prayer is leading to more devotion to Jesus and more humility and greater desire to serve him, then whatever it was was the Holy Spirit. Okay? But if it's not and it's puffing you up and you're getting proud and you're starting to, oh man, I had a revelation last week. You know, the pastor's really off because I had a dream. I had this thing in prayer and the pastor's really wrong in that because I had this thing I saw in my mind. I know it was the Lord. And it was opposite what he was saying. You know, if it's leading into that, you have a problem. You need to repent. So check the fruit always. Okay? Any questions before we do an exercise? How does, it, how does imagination and prophecy go together? Imagination and prophecy go hand in hand because much of what God will give prophetically is in the form of a mental image. So, because you were saying before how sometimes before you go into prayer you pray for just the Holy Spirit or just mm-hmm. for, for everything else. So, in a in a prophetic way, like if you're going to be prophesying about mm-hmm. someone or something, I mean, you might not have a moment to do that, or do you do that before you, I don't know. Well, when you're going to prophesy over somebody, um, first of all, when I'm going to prophesy over somebody, I usually get the sense that I'm supposed to. Mm-hmm. Now, if I, first I get the sense God wants me to. And that is almost always with no message. I just know he wants me to. So I say to the person, would you mind if we were still, stillness is the root, would you mind if I was just still, we could just be still for a few minutes, I just need to wait on the Lord. I think he wants me to tell you something, but I don't know what it is. So would you mind if we just waited? And they always say yes, because they want to hear. And they're polite, nice people. So then I just close my eyes, and I still my heart, I still my heart, And I quiet my mind and I say, Lord, what do you want to say to this person? And then I wait. And one of two things will happen. He will either give me a mental picture, which is imagination of something, and I will see it and I will say, I see his picture of such and such. Does that mean anything to you? Sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. And when it doesn't, I say, can we just wait a minute? And I wait to see the interpretation. And God will then often just speak as a clear thought in my mind. This is what it means. Tell them this. 
Other times you're praying for somebody and um, you know, you're praying along and you're praying a bunch of your prayers. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You're praying your will, your nice desires, your cuddly thoughts. And it's just crap. It's nice, but it just doesn't have anything behind it. And you run out of gas, you know, like I, uh, I don't have anything else to play, pray. Boy, that sucked. And you find yourself in this, this dead, flat place while you're wondering, gee, I wonder what stupidity I should say next. And then all of a sudden the Lord starts to speak. And this thought comes into your head. And it's, it's good, cycle. That's way better than anything I could come up with. Hint number one, probably the Lord. Gee, I'll try that. Bang, instantly the person's crying. You're going, oh my God, how did you know that was my issue? Cha-ching, we stumbled into prophecy, right? But lots of prophecy comes in mental imagery, especially when you're new at it. When I first started doing it, it was all mental imagery that then required an interpretation. Now it's more like just a thought comes and I, I recognize it as, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's the Lord. I'm going to give that thought and just give it. It's just a thought like, I think the Lord wants to say this to you or did something like this happen to you? I think you're struggling with this. Is that what's going on? And out it comes as a thought. But because it often comes as a mental image, we need to really pay attention to our mental images and really pay attention to your mental images when you're praying for somebody. For gosh sakes, 90-some percent chance you're praying for somebody and something pops into your head, there's a good chance it's the Lord. So don't let it go by. Just pause and say, hey, I know this sounds crazy, but I just had this mental image of such and such and so and so. Does that mean anything to you? And if they say yes, you've hit gold. You already have your interpretation. But if they don't, then... You say, could I just uh, wait and I, we need to know what this means. What does this picture mean? And you would ask the Lord, Lord, what does this picture mean? And then be, trust him again and just be still and wait. Oftentimes either another picture will come with more clarity or else a thought will come like, oh, this is what it means. Okay? Imagination isn't something we just use in prayer. I mean, we use it, we, use it, we should be using it spiritually for all sorts of things. Because the realm of imagination, and this is not name it and claim it, and this is not magic, but the realm of imagination is the realm where faith lives. To be able to see that which is not yet seen, to be able to picture something which has not yet happened, but it's what you wish to have happen, is a faculty of faith. Now, to rely on that image and that faculty of imagination to make that the thing that's causing it to happen is magic. That's the power of positive thinking. But... To see with your mind's eye what you believe God wants to have done and trusting God to do it and praying for that image to come to pass is not magic. That's faith. Where the, the mind's eye can see what God wants to do and you take hold of that image and say, that's what I'm praying for. Lord, let that thing just like that happen. And it will often boost your faith because you've seen it. You've seen what is... And this is faith that you've seen what doesn't exist yet, right? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So there's a real use for this in praying for people. So this answers a question that I've had in making sure that before I write anything to thank God for that anything other than Jesus is gone. Right. And that in command to go straight to Jesus and that I'll only hear Jesus' voice. Right. And I will only write what the Holy Spirit is guiding me to write. Yes. So that, because I've had people... But, but let me give you a but, okay? Can you repeat it for that? 
Okay, well, uh, I think the concept is this, that as we're waiting on the Lord for words or pictures or prophetic guidance or whatever, we consecrate our hearts and our minds and our faculties to him and we command what is not of God to be gone from us and we, we disallow an interference by any spirit that is not the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus. Now, most of the time that is successful, okay? But it is not a guarantee that we are always going to hear correctly. We may not hear correctly, not because of the interference of an evil spirit, but because we're not sufficiently skilled at interpreting what we're seeing and we can misinterpret the picture. It could have been a very accurate picture from the Lord, but we have somehow misconstrued its meaning. I'll give you an example. There was a guy who, and this is not my example, this is somebody else's example, um, a young prophetic person, and he had a vision of an empty plate on the kitchen, on the dining room table, an empty plate like this. First he saw the empty plate, and then that was the first vision, and he said, what does it mean? And the Lord, the next vision he saw was the number 40 flashing. So he said, fasting and 40 days. So he went to the pastor and said, the Lord has spoken to me. The church is to have a fast for 40 days. And the pastor said, well, um, what was your revelation? And he said, well, I saw an empty plate. Then I prayed more and I saw 40. And the pastor says, and your interpretation is the church is to go in a 40-day fast. And he said, yes. And the pastor said, whose table was it? It was my table. Well, perhaps you're supposed to go in the 40-day fast. Why don't you do that first and see what happens? Oftentimes, we can have very accurate revelation, mediocre interpretation, and terrible application. And what has to happen is, there's three aspects to prophetic revelation. Revelation, interpretation, application. Revelation is raw data. Highly prophetic people have broadband streaming going into their heads most of the time. It's really a hard way to live. They're great at getting revelation. They're not very good at interpretation. And they're terrible at application. Pastors have way too much to do to broadband streaming stuff coming into their heads all day long. So they're not very good at revelation, but they're quite good at interpretation and really good at application. These two graphs have to cross. Where these two gifts cross is this sweet spot where revelation meets interpretation and application. Acting together in the gifts in a team, you have powerful revelation coupled with good interpretation and wise application. People get blessed. That's just a little side teaching. On so we can pray and ask God give that to us. Absolutely, but listen, but yes, yes, yes. You always ask him for the interpretation and you always ask him for the for the for the uh, application. But you got to understand something because this is not a one man or one woman show. Because we are a community of gifts together, God will often for your safety withhold interpretation or application that has to come with someone else because you won't become the oracle for this church. And you won't become independent in your thinking with your gift. Guys, there's no more powerful gift for screwing up than prophecy. 
There isn't. It is. It's the most. Paul says, "I wish everyone would get it because it's the queen of the gifts." I mean, it is the best. Nothing better than speaking for God. But the damage that you can do, if you misinterpret your revelation, the damage that you can do, and the and the uh, the arrogance that comes with it, and the brokenness in community. I think God withholds oftentimes interpretation and application so that He can create community. And have the mutual love and respect amongst the gifts that they're supposed to be there in the body of Christ. That's interesting because I've noticed that sometimes when you're in a group prophesying over someone, that somebody will have a picture. Yes. And then somebody will have that also have the interpretation for that picture. Yes. And they'll be like, oh, you know, someone had a mm-hmm. picture of something, and then the other person will be like, yes, I, I understand that, and this is what it means. Yes. Eyes, they'll add or they'll yes. add to the picture, and, and then all of a sudden it'll be like, yes. Complete. Yeah. Complete. Yeah. And so that's such a beautiful way to. Yes. It, that it's yes. Like, it, how it's supposed to function. Absolutely. Absolutely. And during intercessory prayer on Wednesday, it is so meaningful. Yeah. Because someone will come up with a vision. Mm hmm. Yeah. Well, that's how you know it's working like it's supposed to. Is not that one lone ranger gets all the, you know, they're the oracle of the church. Yeah, but it's existing in community the way God designed it to. Yes, exactly. And the unity that happens there is so pleasing to the Lord, He gives you a whole bunch more of everything. It attracts, unity attracts His presence like nothing else does. And so when we're functioning in the gifts like that, He just tends to dump a whole lot more on. Yeah, it's incredible. It's just really, it's a gift that to see how people, it's like a weaving, it's a really beautiful mm-hmm. weaving. Yeah, it is. Like everyone is, especially for me on Wednesday, you know, on for the intercessory prayer, everyone is just... And, and, and when prophecy and intercession come together, there's great power. Mm-hmm. See, prophecy comes down from above and God says, this is what I want to do. And prophecy speaks that, and the intercessors say, okay, then that's what we're going to do. And they complete this thing. And when those two gifts function together, under the wise application of spiritual leadership, being the pastor, then you have phenomenal power released in a place. And then it really cooks like it's supposed to. And I was just thinking, thing that is really helpful, too, when I'm alone with God, and when I'm seeking his counsel and wisdom and I'm writing, it's really important for me to make sure that what I'm hearing is from the Lord. And mm-hmm. what I do is I ask some very powerful intercessors right. to say, this is, this is what I heard. Do you think this is accurate? Exactly. What do you sense about yeah. this? And for me, that's like an insurance policy. Yeah. Because sometimes it's kind of outlandish yeah. and I really don't want to believe it. Yeah, and that's also humility. You see, when you submit your revelations to others and you allow them to speak into your life on it, all of a sudden you're exercising humility and God exalts the humble. Right. Okay, guys, we're going to do a cool exercise. Which You're welcome. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, you guys ready? Get comfortable. Get very comfortable. Have a bite, have a drink, get comfortable.
Thank you, darling. Okay, this is an exercise of the imagination, which we are going to use, and you can use any time that you want to um, still and quiet your heart. It is going to be an exercise in taking the pressure off the rope, letting go. All right, this is going to be an exercise in letting go. Okay, so close your eyes, get comfy. Father, we thank you for your presence here by your Holy Spirit. You are present and you are so good. We love you, Lord. Now we welcome you to use our imagination to reveal yourself. You, Lord Jesus, your presence and your goodness and your love. And in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we take authority over every spirit present to us that is not of God and we command you to be silent and to be gone in the mighty name of Jesus and we welcome you Holy Spirit the Spirit of Jesus Christ the Spirit of the living God we invite you and welcome you to come and use our imaginations to reveal Jesus and to reveal the Father and to teach us truth and to show us things about ourselves and to usher us into your presence we invite you to do that and we trust you to do that Imagine that you're in a huge, empty warehouse. It has a cement floor, and it's huge, and there's nothing in it as far as you can see. You walk to the center of this big, high, open space. There's one small light bulb hanging from the ceiling a 40 watt bulb and it casts this circle of light on the floor and everything outside of that circle is still and dark and you walk into the center of that little circle of light see yourself standing in this circle of light, this little cone of light coming down from the coming down from the ceiling. Now, interestingly, you notice that you're not alone in the circle. You look around and it's amazing, but there are several more of you in the circle. There's you, the employee. There's you, the mother. There's you, the father. There's you, the friend. There's you who works. There's all these different yous in the circle with you and each one of them is some role that you occupy something that you do 
the worker, the boss, the friend, the sister, the mother, the father, the brother, the neighbor, the friend. There's all these other yous in the circle. But what you're able to do is you're able to go to one of them and say, you need to go now. And then they just walk out of the circle. See yourself going to one of those yous and saying, you need to go now. And they just go. Who went first? Now you go to another one and you say, you need to go too. It's not harsh. You're just letting them go and they just step out. Then you go to another one you say, you need to go too, and they just step out of the circle of light. Just dismiss them, one after the other. You dismiss them until you're alone. There's nobody else in the circle. All the roles, all the expectations, all the things that you have to do, they've all left. And you're truly alone, but you're at peace, and you're still, and you're just waiting. Now Jesus steps into the circle of light. And he walks up to you. And he's standing close to you. No roles, no expectations, no job descriptions, just you and him. What do you do? What do you say? What does he do? What does he say?
Okay. Let the scene fade. Out of the way for us to really be close. What is it? Show me that aspect. And he will. He'll say this. This well. The observation is that for two of us, stepping into the circle was uh, difficult and vulnerable. Oh, this is really interesting. Mm -hmm. It was a place of vulnerability because that part of you was going to be revealed. Mm Exactly. And that part doesn't want to go. Mm-hmm. So there's a part of you, an aspect of your of your roles or of your expectations or even of your character, personality, that, um, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. It might, in fact, be a strength or something that has to get out of the way so that you can encounter God more deeply. We don't know. But I say, go back in prayer and say, Lord, what was that part of me that I needed to dismiss? That, that, I was, that I couldn't identify. Please show me what that is that I'm coming up against that comes between us. Okay. You know what? This is another way of saying, search me, O God. Mm-hmm. Know my ways and try me. Show me if there be anything in me that is in the way. Sometimes, you know, half the time it's our own strengths. Half the time it's what we do really well that has become something we rely upon that we have to let go of. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's a fear that we have to let go of. Uh, A lie, perhaps, that we're believing about ourselves or about God that is in the way and we have to get rid of it. This little exercise has shown you there's probably something there. That's a good step. Mm -hmm. Then you go to him and you say, okay, now what is it? And he'll reveal it to you because it's it's in your best interest and his best interest that you be able to dismiss that as you come to him and get beyond that. And I was in the circle with Jesus and he came up to me and I realized I'm really tired of standing. This is kind of awkward. And all of a sudden two wingback chairs just appeared like that. And we sat down and we're just like just like talking really close. It was it was nice. But I don't even know what we said. But it was just a nice sense of... So you felt that you had to be doing something. Yeah. That was a good one, wasn't it? I like that. Okay, so here's the point. Here's the point. Try doing this when you come to prayer, to being still. Start with the... If the warehouse is too scary, uh, it, it needs to be something with a defined parameter where you can dismiss the parts and they just somehow disappear. Okay, they leave the room. You're in a room and it's a nice, comfortable living room or something and you can just let them go out the door and just dismiss them one at a time, identify them and let them go. And then you're there, the core you, and he comes in and whatever happens, happens. You don't have to speak, nothing. Just let your imagination fill it in and just be with him. It's a good way to take the parts of your personality that are especially the roles and expectations and just dismiss them and let them go mm-hmm. until you're down to the core. And then you get to relate to him, not around your roles and expectations, <coughs> just soul to soul, person to person. 
nice way to come in to a sense of his presence. Okay. Well, until it doesn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. And then you go back and try it again. Mm -hmm. See, success in prayer is not defined by how perfectly you're in contact with them, but how frequently you come back after you're distracted. Okay. That's you see, success, success in prayer is not having an uninterrupted hour with Jesus. I don't think it's possible. Brother Lawrence probably did it a couple times, but he wrote a book on it and famous. The rest of us, we struggle. The success in prayer is, look, you get close to him. It's really good for a few minutes or seconds. Something distracts you. You start to circle away. Oh, I'm distracted. You come back quick. Success is how fast you come back and that you come back. And you might have in a prayer time to come back six or seven or even ten times. But you come back to him and you reconnect and you start again. Not the whole imagination, but you just come back around to that conversation you're having with him or come back around to realizing he's right here right now. We're present. Oh, I can relax again. I'm in his presence. That's good. You're here. You're here right now, Lord. And if I could interject, that's what the abiding becomes. What, What I find is these exercises and carving the hour or whatever in the day, it, it's like training wheels. It gets a track in my brain groove so that I can go there. The more often I do that, then I can be in a traffic jam or something and I can go into that place quicker. So those times then are not restricted to my morning time of stillness with him. They become more frequent through the day. And I think that's what Brother Lawrence wrote about he he was practicing the presence of God so he trained himself to sweep the floor with Christ to do the dishes with Christ to so it was more than the times of stillness carved a groove in your gray matter so that you can return there often that's why it's called abiding yeah I think I like to say um His presence is just a pause away. When you practice coming into his presence in stillness and all these things we're learning, the more you do it, the more you become accustomed to doing it, the quicker you can still and quiet your heart and come into his presence. He's always here. You're coming into an awareness of his presence. You're making contact. And making contact is the most vital thing you can do. And, you know, you don't have to make contact more than a minute or so for it to affect you. You can be all stirred up. You can have anxiety and worries and fears and all sorts of things. But if you can just learn to do this, you pause, you come into his presence, you make spirit to spirit contact or mind to mind contact. His peace touches you. You walk out of that experience and you're not the same person as when you went in. A lot of those fears are gone. You've remade, you've made contact again. So it becomes a way of, well, Paul says pray continually. I don't think Paul possibly meant, I can't think that he meant that no matter what you're doing, like let's say you're, um, I see a skier on a mogul course in the Olympics, going down this mogul course straight down and, you know, their, their knees are just like, 
every bit of concentration or he's going to die. So he can't be praying while he's doing it. Oh God, please bless Billy and, and help Aunt Sue and you know, smack into a tree. But when he's finished the run, he can return to God in his thoughts and he can recenter. Do you follow what I'm yeah. saying? I don't think Paul meant somehow we're able to just keep on praying no matter what's going on around us. I think he means Abiding. when this moment that we were just in is complete, where does my heart return to? Do I come back to him or do I run off in search of something different? Mm-hmm. Throughout the day, we should have times when we just find ourselves, circ- okay, I just finished that phone call. It was good or it was bad or it was indifferent, but I just finished that phone call. I just have another awareness now of God's presence here with me in this room before I go on to the next thing. I'm driving down, the, there's a red light. At the red light, why miss the opportunity? Don't turn on the radio. Just pause and think about God for 10 seconds. It's these frequent pauses and moments that are made possible, made possible by the discipline we learn in our prayer time. So we can resort to it throughout the day when necessary. And here's the really cool thing. When you become practiced at that, you go into ministry situations. And as soon as you go into the ministry situation, you pause You shut yourself down inside, you get still, and you wait for what he wants to do. The actions that come out of that, most of the time, are his actions, and they have his power attached to them. They're not flesh. They're spirit-inspired. Because you paused and waited, got in contact with him first, and then went out and did what what he wanted you to do. That's why this is foundational. Yes, because you're living a life out of prayer. Your actions are determined by your relational contact with God, not by a system of laws or rules, not by what I ought to do, but what's coming out of your abiding relationship with him, which can be regained in a moment's pause. So more of your actions become spirit-led and spirit-empowered than if you're just... I'm going to go out and do good things for God today. I've got six ideas I'm going to try. You're coming out of a relationship, not out of a program. Does this make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm like jumping for joy inside right now as you're talking. Well, it just makes so much... See, it's really what it's supposed to be. It, it describes my days like to a T. I mean, literally describes... You just described my walk through the day right now. And you just put words to what I do. So that's... That's a blessing. I mean, that is like... Good. Good. Right now. So, and here's the other thing. This is so cool. Um, I don't know how much of the story to tell, just enough to make it meaningful. Um, We want to divide our lives into that which is sacred and that which is secular. We want to divide our lives into spiritual activities and unspiritual activities. Why we want to do that, I don't know. Every activity is spiritual if you're doing it with an awareness of his presence with you. It'll also help you not to sin. The more aware of his presence, the less things you want to do that are embarrassing and shaming and hurtful. So, The coolest thing is that there isn't any distinction between what's spiritual and what isn't. It's all spiritual if, he's, if you're aware of his presence with you. Which now means that all sorts of things 
that you didn't think was our spiritual become worship mm-hmm. because he's present mm-hmm. you acknowledge his presence with you in that moment fun becomes more fun mm-hmm. uh, your hobbies become more meaningful and more significant beauty touches you more deeply than it ever has before nature screams about him all sorts of things become richer shot full the whole earth is filled with his glory so he had I'm trying to say six things at once um, the whole day becomes holy the more conscious you are of his presence with you in those moments and it all takes on meaning and communication and it's all worship and a celebration and then what you would have otherwise thought as interruptions are like for a mother if you have in this mind that it's only useful if you're teaching Bible verses and singing songs and everything else is a step back when you get rid of that mindset and you see doing the whole nine yards with Jesus as worship then those little interruptions don't cause frustration like today my day did not go anywhere near what I had planned but I kept going back to this place of abiding get to the end of the day it wasn't a wasted day how does that how does that fit in then with like the times because I recently had a, a, like a period of time a couple of weeks where like I, I felt like he wasn't not that he wasn't there but wasn't there in the same way because I would keep circling back around to him like I normally do, like, okay, you know, done, you know, getting the girls ready, okay, now, okay, God, like, race center, okay, done doing this, now, okay, coming back to you. But when I would come back, like, I didn't, it was like that, kind of like, it, not it was desolation, it was, not yes. consolation. And so I literally was like, <laughs> did it increase, I was very cranky. <laughs> did it increase, did it increase your longing? And literally, I got to the point where I was like, like, in, I don't know, like in the fetal position, just like. Hmm. What did I talk about? So. It sounds. It sounds like it increased your longing, and it really made you aware of how miserably screwed up you are without him. <laughs> yeah, but it was also fruitful because yeah, it, taught you it, I mean, it taught you something. It taught you something. It showed you. But it was just. It. It just in the context of that, like. Of, of throughout my day, just like going back to him constantly and knowing that, you know, and always resetting myself with him, and then all of a sudden not being there, it was like but how much you want him. Yeah. You found out how much he needs to. You also found out what it is to persevere, yeah. to go after him, which he wants you to do. And here's guys, anytime you're in a crisis, anytime it seems like he's not there, or any kind of crisis, there's only one question that's worth asking. There's only one question that will redeem every one of these apparently negative situations. What are you trying to teach Mm -hmm. me in this Mm -hmm. moment? This is hard right now. Mm -hmm. This is horrible. I wish it would end. What are you trying to teach me now? It is a question he will never fail to answer. He will always say, he'll reveal, I'm trying to teach you this. Okay. 
And the minute he tells you what he's trying to teach you, you focus on that as if it's the most important thing in the universe. I am going to learn this. This is my moment. This is my opportunity to learn this. I'm going to learn this. God help me to learn this. The minute you do that, you have redeemed that crisis. And it is now to your benefit and to your growth. And the beautiful thing is, by asking that question, him answering it, you focusing on it, you just shorten the time. You've got to yeah. sit in that place. Because you're learning from it what he intended you could. The devil may intend it for bad, but God has yeah. a lesson in it. Amen. May I? if you can find the lesson and go after it, it will shorten the experience Amen. and it will enrich you and make you stronger than if it hadn't happened. That's the question to ask. May I put a caveat in there, though, because some of us still have lies programmed in us from our parents or, you know, how we interpreted being brought up. So we might stop and ask God, what are you trying to teach me? And we might get a lot of condemnation coming in. That, again, is where I direct people to community. You know, having a mentor, having a wise person where you can hold up a window to some of your thoughts and say, could God really be saying this? Saying this? And they will, yes. they will be able to be a safeguard. So some of us who are still being healed from certain tapes, certain parenting, if you hear condemnation mixed in that, remember the difference between condemnation and conviction. Conviction, you can do something about it. There is something. Condemnation is you're just a loser. So having that mentor, having, having somebody that can check some of those things, because sometimes when we ask, what are you trying to teach us, we might also get that executive assistant yeah. that you mentioned sometimes. Yeah, and what are you trying to teach me? Whatever he says, it has to be consistent with his character in Scripture. Yeah, he, he's Which is good. I'm teaching you your dependency on me. Good. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Completely dependent on me. You're completely dependent on me. And boy, you found that out, didn't you? I get it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing was that the other thing he said he kept saying was that um, that I. That what worked in the past is not going to work right now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. He's changing the game. Like he, ritual the or religious program. Yeah. Okay. I won't be reduced. It to was that. basically like how you've reached me in the past. It's not going to work right now. Right. It's like you you have to seek me in different ways. Yeah. Like wow. you know, it's relationship. Like a worship thing. A relationship. Yeah, whatever. Whatever it was, and yeah. so that was so my my regular go to places. Yeah. Would grow. No, absolutely. You would stall right there and no, say, "This is working great. I don't need anything more. This is my God." And the emotion for me to do really more than anything is define our faith as a relationship mm-hmm. rather than a religion, mm-hmm. and it's easier to define it in re- in religious terms, but it's wrong. It's incomplete. The relational the relational thing is far closer. It's getting closer to the heart of the matter. It's just to the Lord like crazy, but I couldn't have a good prayer life. And then, and then I learned these things, you know, through my Catholic sister, and um, that was the foundation of a prayer life that's lasted to this day. So it really is an important thing, and it makes the whole deal so much more doable than than just praying for missionaries or just petitionary prayer or just spiritual warfare. And that's okay; those are all good things. They're the results of something. It's really worthwhile. I would say essential that the parts that you can download off the website, you listen to. Because we're only doing live the parts that 
aren't on tape. And the parts that are on tape are really important. So sit down with them again and play it a little bit and then try it. And then play it a little more and then try the next thing. Can you make 